the hottest places in hell reserved for those who in times of great moral crisis maintain their neutrality. Well, I want to talk about that today. That's where we're headed this morning in some verses that I want us to look at through our series over the Old Testament life of Esther. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Esther chapter 4, Esther chapter 4, and you'll find that on page 356 of your church Bibles. And the verses that we're going to read today push us and challenge us uh, to do what God has called us to do when it is in our power to act. And so, uh, where we're going today is I have some verses to read, I have a story to tell, and then I have a point to make. And that's where we're going in Esther chapter 4 as we continue learning about this, this credible life of this woman who, um, who is a Jewish orphan and by the, the power and providence of God whose name we do not see in the book of Esther. The name God does not appear at all in the book of Esther, uh, but he's everywhere, you know. And uh, by God's power, this Jewish orphan girl uh, becomes queen of a world power. And so let's learn from Esther chapter 4. Verses to read. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 
When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. It's the word of God. Well, our scripture today begins with the political protest. Some of you came to church thinking we were not going to be dealing with things like politics, but not here. No, that's what's going on here. That's why Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. He is publicly protesting a decision by his government. And he's an official in the government. And he's in the public square. And he's putting on what would traditionally be clothes of mourning and grieving over someone's death. But but nobody's died yet. He's protesting a decision by his king, his boss. Now, this was bold. This was in the day before the Bill of Rights. What on earth is going on here? Why would he do this? Well, that's what Esther wants to know. And so the scene shifts. The scene opens here in the public marketplace, uh, uh, but then quickly the scene shifts in the palace where, where, where resides Queen Esther, kind of like the Persian White House right there, and she has attendants and uh, servants making sure that every one of her needs happened to be met and all, and, and, then, and, and, then, and then all of a sudden some of her servants come up to her and say, your highness, Do you see what's on CNN here? No, I watch Fox News. Well, turn to CNN here. Soledad O'Brien has just interviewed this this guy. Doesn't that that look like your cousin Mordecai? Guy who who reared you? I mean, doesn't that, what's, she looks, oh my goodness. What's he doing? Why, why, Why is he dressed that way out in public? He's, has sackcloth, he's covered himself with ashes, he's crying, wailing, and protesting uh, uh, the policy of Xerxes. What's, what's going on there? Go, go, go find out what's going on. And, and here, take these clothes and, and have him put these on because he's not going to be able to enter the palace dressed like that. So the servants and attendants go, and, and Esther's waiting for Mordecai to come in so they can talk about what's going on. And to her surprise... What comes back, huh, are simply the calls, right? And it's not that 
he's raptured or anything, you know. So, just wanted to, you understand that? Yesterday we were supposed to be, and you know, we're still here, and so I assume that's a good thing, you know. Just had to bring that up, okay? All right. Where was I? Close. So, there's the clothing, but there's no Mordecai, and something must be up. So, she sends, not one of the staff, she sends the chief of staff. See, Xerxes has appointed a fellow by the name of Hatak to make Esther happy and to do whatever it is she needed as queen. And so, Esther says to Hatak, I need you to go out there, I need you to talk to Mordecai, I need to figure out what it is that's going on, why he's so upset. And so... He does. He leaves the palace, drives out on Pennsylvania Avenue, turns on the main street, goes into the marketplace square, finds Mordecai, not hard to pick out, and talks to him. What's going on here? And verse 7 says that Mordecai told Hatak everything. Everything. Mordecai told Hatak, how Haman had been appointed prime minister of the Persian Empire by Xerxes. Mordecai told Hatak how after being appointed prime minister of the Persian Empire, Haman started demanding that everybody bow before him to recognize how great he was. Mordecai told Hatak how he refused to bow before Haman because Haman was just a self-centered, pompous, arrogant prig and he wasn't going to bow before him. Then Mordecai told Hatak how Haman was so incensed at this snub that he concocted a law which would lead to the annihilation not only of Mordecai's life, but the life of all of the Hebrews throughout the entire empire, India to Africa, and King Xerxes unwittingly signed this law, signed the bill, and then Mordecai told Hatak how Haman had promised Xerxes that after all of the Hebrews had been put to death, they were going to be able to loot the possessions of the Hebrew people and the amount of money, the amount of, 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 of that booty which was going to come in to the Persian Empire would be more than half of the annual tax revenue of the empire. That's about $1.5 trillion. Imagine that kind of a surplus. That's big money. And Mordecai told Hatak that he had all the documentation, provided the Excel spreadsheets and all of the accounting figures, and, and he even supplied a copy of the edict of the law which Xerxes had signed, making it official. And then, the very last thing, Mordecai scribbled a note to Hatak, handed it to him, and he went back to the palace. 
He left the marketplace square, went onto Main Street, turned onto Pennsylvania Avenue, entered the palace, and gave all of the information to Esther. And she looks at it, and she's absolutely shocked. What? My husband? Authorizing the annihilation of the Hebrew people? How is that possible? How is that possible? First time she's heard it. What? Now, now let's just take a time out for just a minute. All right? Let's, let's, let's dwell on that question for just a moment. How, how is that possible? What you need to know is in Esther chapter 4, every Hebrew across the Persian Empire, from India to Africa, knew about that annihilation edict because the Persian postal system was pretty good, pretty accurate. And so the Hebrews all over the empire, including Israel, are weeping and wailing, sackcloth, ashes, Susa, everywhere, everywhere. And yet, this is the very first time Esther hears about the news of the edict. And she lives in the palace where her husband lives. Who signed the edict into law? They're in the palace. Can you say bubble? Can you say insulation? That's what's going on here. I mean, how is it possible for her to be so, so just compartmentalized in her own little universe that she's just, she's just, you know, what, what, what is up with that? Well, well, what is up with that? Well, maybe bad news just wasn't permitted in the palace. It's possible. It's possible. That's reasonable. Could be, you know. It happens. And it's also possible that Esther has become so acclimated to life as a Persian. She dresses like the Persians, speaks the language of the Persians, puts on makeup like the Persians, eats like the Persians. She's just become so much like the Persian, who would even suspect her of being Hebrew anyway? See? Isn't it true how easy it is to become acclimated to the world that we are not only in the world but of the world isn't that true and furthermore isn't it true how easy it is to assume that our world and our experiences in our little bubble with our level of incomes pretty much well that's just the way everybody else lives right that's the way everybody else lives I mean here we've become so protected by the palace that we fail to see the plight of other people outside of the palace I'm thinking of a photographer by the name of Peter Menzel who wrote a book called Our Material World in which he surveys 30 cultures pretty much picks out a typical family a typical family in one of these 30 cultures and asks them to take all of their stuff outside their residence so he can photograph them and their stuff, all right? And so he takes a picture of a family in Southwest um, America and photographs all of their stuff and then he takes other pictures of other countries and then this in India, that's all their stuff. And it 
That kind of prompts the question, how much stuff do we really need? And, 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 and you know, I mean, okay, does everybody have my experience? Does everybody have my educational experiences, vocational experiences? I mean, have I become so protected by my little bubble that I just kind of forget about that, huh? It's a good question. And not only the plight of people around the world, but what about the plight of God's people? Fellow Christians in the family of God. I'm thinking of my friend Sundar Tapa in this next picture. This photograph was taken in February, and Sundar, uh, uh, who has preached at this very spot before our church family, God's using him in an amazing way in the country of Nepal. And uh, I was able, uh, by God's grace and his generosity, to, uh, uh, to preach last year there in Kathmandu. And this picture here was taken in February, and Sundar is leading a political protest here. And, and let me tell you what the issue is. The Christians had not been allowed to bury their dead. That's the issue. And uh, in a predominantly Hindu culture, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of, of uh, you know, I guess you could call it soft persecution, but that's kind of a contradiction in terms. And uh, Sundar's appealing to the government. You know, can, we just, you know, can we just have a place to bury our dead? Have we ever had that problem here in the United States? Huh? You see? You see, these verses teach me how important it is for us to get outside the palace. And some of you may be thinking, Randy, you keep saying that we're in the palace. Why do you keep saying this? Church family, we live in the United States of America. We're in the palace, all right? Compared to the rest of the world, we're in the palace. And, and that, you know, that's why we go to the Dominican Republic that's why we go to Peru. That's why we go to Ethiopia. That's why we're going to El Paso. And that's why on June 11th, we're participating in Jesus Days at uh, Restoration Urban Ministries. And that's why in August, we'll participate in Family Resource Day. And that's why uh, in September, we as a congregation, by God's grace, will participate in our weekend of service. And that's why we're having a task manager sign-up meeting right over there by those signs after this service, okay? And, and how, how uh, I guess, pleased and joyful I am when I think about the intentional ways we have grown at getting outside the palace in terms of our church family. And it's with joy that I say that because I know, I know that you know that you're making efforts to use the resources that God has given to, to make a difference to those outside the palace. We, we, do, we are not in the palace and, and we don't need to feel guilty about being in the palace. We just need to understand that we have not been put in the palace in order to exploit the palace. We've been put in the palace to, to help serve those outside the palace even at great personal risk and this is where back to our story Esther's eyes pop wide open because she reads the last part of that note that Mordecai had written to her and she scribbles back another note to Hatak, gives it to him he goes out of the palace down Pennsylvania Avenue turns on the main street goes to the marketplace finds Mordecai 
hands him this note, which in flawless Hebrew says this. Are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Mordecai, you know the law. You know, you know that that you're not allowed to approach the king uninvited. You have to be invited. I can't just saunter up into the king's presence because if I do and he doesn't receive me by raising his scepter, right then and there, there's an executioner with an ax ready to lop off my head. Are you absolutely crazy? I mean, you should know that. Besides, you're the one who told me to conceal my identity anyway. What's going on with you? And then she says this, and I haven't seen the man in a month. Maybe their relationship had cooled. Maybe. Yeah. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, Mordecai, Mordecai pushes back. He scribbles another note. He hands it to Hatak, who leaves the marketplace, drives down Main Street, goes on to Pennsylvania Avenue, goes to the palace, hands it back to her. She looks at it. Esther. Don't think they won't find you. You may be in the palace, but you're not safe. You're not. Verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. You want to get in on this game or not? It's time to step up. It's time to step up. God's people will ultimately be preserved because he's made a covenant with them. But what about you? What about your family? What about your, I'm your family. What about it? And, and, and have you not considered that this is why you're here? This is why you're here. Huh? You know what? We hear a lot about grace here, and it's all true. We come to God by grace through faith. And he gives us responsibilities as stewards of the kingdom. Now that said, listen, there are some tests that you don't get to retake. You don't. You don't get to retake those tests. You have one chance. You go to the line, you put your foot on the nail, and you take your shot, and it's a defining moment. You get one tryout for the team. You get one interview. You get one chance to land the plane. You get one life, just one few moments here at the end of the service, we're going to be praying over our graduating seniors, and they're asking themselves, you know, how do I discern God's will for my life? And the answer is this, go wherever the gifts God has given you will be exploited the most, because you have one life, just one, and what are you going to do with the one life that God has given? What will Esther do? Will she remain an undercover believer and depend on the empire to protect her? Or is she going to go public and risk her life to save her people? So you're going to have to identify, Esther, are you Persian or are you Hebrew? Which is it? 
It's time. It's time to step out into the light. And apparently no one in court, including her husband, knew that she was Jewish. And to save her people would mean revealing her own identity, which would mean admitting that she had not lived the kind of life that a devout Jewish woman of God should have lived. And she would immediately become a target for the wicked Haman. What's she going to do? And she looks at that note. And she sighs. And she scribbles a message and hands it to Hadak, who leaves the palace, right? Pennsylvania Avenue, Main Street, Marketplace. Mordecai. Verse 16. Gather God's people in Susa. Call for a fast for three days, no food and water. I'll do the same with my staff here. And then I'll go to the king. I'll go to the king. Hmm. And if I perish, I perish. And, uh, and so that's what she did. And that's what they did. And after three days of a food and water fast, all right, three days of fasting from food and water, in a day when Persian kings liked their women well-fed. After three days of fasting from food and water with that emaciated look afterwards, she dons the royal robes, the royal robes of the queen. She's not asking him out on a date. This is business. And she steps into the inner court. And once she steps into the inner court, she's at the point of no return. There is no turning back. It's an irrevocable decision. She steps into the inner court. And there he is at the end. And he sees her. She locks eyes with the king in the inner court. And you know what happens next? Oh my, look at the time. (laughs) Let's talk about it next week. Okay? Verses to read, story to tell, a point to make. And here's the point, church family. When you can give to the good of others. When God gives you the resources, when God gives you the capital, when when you can give to the good of others, God wants you to give. He wants you to give. See, this, this entire passage is about the, the ministry of mediation, the, the, the importance of, being, of going between. God work, God's work gets done through the ministry of those who go between. And, and, and I'm thinking of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, which says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. This, this whole chapter, you notice this whole chapter is about, about mediators and, and, and people who serve as go-betweens. This, this conversation between Mordecai and Esther did not take place between you know, the, uh, 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 the, the gates of an, an iron 
uh, wrought fence or anything like that. It, it took place between the mediation of Hatak. All of it going back and forth and back and forth. Two major scenes, the marketplace, the palace. And there was a, there was a mediator that went between here. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. And so when God gives you the ability to do what is good for others, to do what they can't do themselves. I'm not talking about doing what they should do themselves. I'm talking about doing what they can't do themselves. Then God wants us to do it. He wants us to give. He wants us to share. He wants us to stand in the gap and step up and, and speak up and offer up. And that's what we see here. See, who are you in this story? Who are you? Are you Esther? Well, up to this point, Esther's been pretending. She's been an undercover believer. She's been passive, hasn't she? She's been following the path of least resistance. Why, up to this point, when we read about Esther's life, it's, it's in the passive tense. She's taken to the capital. She's taken to the harem. She's taken to the king's bedroom. It's passive. She's kind of going with the flow. But at this defining moment, she changes. She's no longer this Persian prom queen with a pretty face. She becomes an outstanding woman of character, moral stature, and political skill. The Esther that we see in chapter 2, verse 20, matures into the Esther of chapter 4, verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 20, she just did whatever Mordecai told her to do. But look what's happened here in Esther 4, verse 17. She's the one giving the instructions and giving the orders and calling the shots. And Mordecai is the one who is following, you see. She's stepping up. I love this uh, little, uh, I guess you could call it trivia. But Esther's name appears 47 times in the book of Esther in the New International Version. 47 times Esther's name appears. 14 of those 47 times, she's referred to as Queen Esther. Queen Esther. Thirteen of those fourteen times which she's referred to as Queen Esther, it occurs after this statement, if I perish, I perish. You see, once she identifies with the people of God and she's standing with Yahweh, why, my goodness, she's fulfilling the destiny that God has given her as queen, you see. Some of us need to step up. And that means asking questions like, have I become blinded by the palace to the true plight of those outside? And sometimes, you know, it takes a threatening alternative to wake us up from our complacency and lead as God wants us to lead. Anybody here going through some trauma here today? Perhaps you should ask the question, how am I interpreting this present chapter of the trauma through which I'm going? Perhaps God is giving you the opportunity to do that which, he, which is your destiny in Christ to do. For Esther, there were no guarantees when she said, if I perish, I perish. There wasn't. There was not any promise ahead of time that the Red Sea was going to part. We read this story, you know, on the other side of Esther's life, but she had no idea. She said, if I perish, I perish. And I can guarantee you, when you say, if I perish, I perish, some people do. Some do. Acts chapter 12, the apostle James said, if I perish, I perish, and he was put to death by the sword. Uh, Acts chapter 12, the apostle Peter said, if I perish, I perish, and he was preserved. Well, what's the difference? Well, you know, what, 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 what didn't James do that Peter did so that, you know what, it's not their call, it's God's call. And both, 
James died to the glory of God, Peter lived to the glory of God. Life or death to the glory of God. And God's glory is more important than your life. Anybody here need a word from Esther here? That's the word. The word is step up. Step up and give to the good of others. Hmm. But she's not the only person in this chapter, is she? What about Mordecai? Huh? Is Mordecai, is Mordecai whispering in your ear here? Huh? Is there a Mordecai in your life? You got someone in your life. Is there someone out there in the public square scribbling you notes, demanding more of you than you would ever demand of yourself? See, that's the ministry of Mordecai. Challenging me to be and do what I just, am just too lazy by myself to be and do. Don't you need a Mordecai? Don't you? See, see, here's the deal. (sighs) The more responsibility that someone has uh, or, you know, the higher up they are in an organization, if you can allow me to put it that way, the less others tend to feel that you need someone like Mordecai in your life. And the truth is, it's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. And here's why. The power of the peer group's approval will determine the level at which you play. So you better choose your Mordecai's wisely because the power of their approval will determine the level at which you play. You better have God-fearing friends who will look you in the face and say, you're more than this. You are more than this. Sometimes my job requires me to be a Mordecai to some of you. You come into my office. You come into my office thinking that maybe you're going to get, you know, some sort of spiritual aromatherapy or whatever, you know. And I love every one of the folks both in and outside of this church that come into my office. But you know what? Sometimes you just need to hear. You gotta go, you gotta go to the king on this. You gotta go. Nobody else can go. You gotta go. You gotta go to the king. You gotta do it. All right? You need to. And 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 you know, there's a temptation for ministers to just to wanna, you know, kind of just pamper and, and, and say, oh, I know life is stressful and it's going to be okay and this and that. And, and really, you know, what you need to hear is, yeah, you could get killed. Okay? You could get killed. You could perish. Yeah. Yeah, we better pray, huh? Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the, the palace... The palace can be a, an influential platform. They're not going to let me in. They're not going to let me in the palace. But they've let you in the palace. Now you got to go to the king. And, and Mordecai did not back off, even if it was the, the girl he reared. He does not back off. You, and you know what he says to her? He says, figure it out. That's it? That's it. Figure it out. I don't have any more papyrus to write on. Get the job done, sweetheart. That's in the Hebrew. 
That's not what I say in my office. Maybe I should say that. Get the job done. No, I won't say that. Sister, I'll say sister. Sometimes my job does require me to be a Mordecai. And you know what? I'm thankful to God for the Mordecais in my life. Ken Boatwright is a Mordecai in my life. Known him for 30 years. He's a brother in Christ. And uh, Carl Weigel and all the other elders are Mordecais in my life. They are. And, uh, and, um, whether Carl or Kevin or Dan or Adam or elders, you know, they love me enough to affirm the strength areas in my life and, and they're not afraid to challenge me on the areas where I need to grow and the areas where they say, you know, Randy, we love you and you can be more, all right? And if you want to know what specifics are, Regarding that, you go see Carl, chairman of our elders, and he'll share with you my last year's performance review. Okay? You got a Mordecai in your life? If you got Mordecais like I, I got Mordecais, you will feel like you're in the palace. I'm a rich pastor. So some of you are Esther. Others of you may feel like you're Mordecai, but, but you know what? I believe that all of us need to remember that in this chapter, we're, we're somebody else, all right? Who? God's people. God's people. You see, see, God's people, what could they do? You know what? They couldn't do anything. Well, they fasted, right? Yeah, well, but they needed more than fasting. Fasting is good. Prayer is good, but they needed more than fasting and prayer. They needed a mediator. They needed someone who would go and plead their case where they could not. They couldn't go into the presence of the king to seek mercy for themselves. Someone else had to do it for them. Someone else. Why why do you think they were in Persia in the first place? Wasn't it because their ancestors had sinned and the Babylonians had carted them off into exile? Now Persia had taken over. Some of them had gone back, but others of them were scattered. Why were they scattered? Because of their disobedience. Who's going to argue their case? Who's going to argue our case? Doesn't the gospel tell us of a truer and better Esther? Whose name is Jesus? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he lived as one of us in a sinful and fallen and sick world. And yet after a life of perfect obedience, he said, if I perish, I perish. And for Jesus, when he said, if I perish, I perish, he wasn't talking about the possibility of death, but the certainty of Roman execution. For Jesus, when he said, if I perish, I perish, it meant not a swift beheading from a Persian axe. Rather, it meant a slow, torturous, excruciating hell on a Roman cross. For Jesus, when he said, if I perish, I perish, it meant not entering some Persian palace before a human king. But rather, as the Hebrew writer tells us, it meant entering heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Oh, when Jesus 
Jesus said, if I perish, I perish. It meant not passing notes uh, to the outside world from the palace to the marketplace. Rather, it meant Jesus went himself and he left the king's gate and he left the city gate and he suffered, as the Hebrew writer tells us, outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Church family, the hottest place in hell was reserved for the one who in our crisis of sin substituted himself for our sake. Jesus did not withhold good from those who did not deserve it, but in his power and through his love, he acted. And that is why I'm a Christian today. And three days later, Three days later, after Christ fasted in death, he rose imperishably, thus guaranteeing our safety before God the Father, whom we can now approach wearing his son's robes, those royal, regal robes of righteousness. Amen.